Welcome to this Wigmore Hall podcast. I'm Sarah Moore-Peach, a writer and broadcaster about music, and I'm delighted to be in conversation with the great Gerald Finlay. It's <laughs> always such a pleasure to talk to you about, about music and, and your art form, because you're one of those people who I think thinks really, really deeply about what it is that you do and, and why you do it. I, yeah, I love it. I just love it. I, I think that's, you know, I'm the... The blessings that have come my way through music since I was a well, small boy really is have been endless. So I no, I, I'm I'm reflective, yes, but I was always happy to talk about it. And also really busy as well. I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, you find time for reflection, but you have a really packed diary. Yes, I'm as busy as I could ever hope to be. Um, I, it's one of those things where there's such a lot of wonderful uh, opportunities going on that. It's really difficult to, you know, say no sometimes. And um, I have a very supportive family environment where where that is understood in some ways that I, you know, I'm seizing as much opportunity as I, as I can. You know, I won't go on forever. So um, I'm being as busy as I can. <laughs> you inhabit the two worlds, the opera world and the song world. Yeah. Um, and before we kind of focus in on, on the art of song and what you do here at Wigmore Hall, mm. I'm curious to know how you balance that out for yourself. I mean, there are some singers for whom, you know, the opera stage is the comfortable place and they fill the opera house and then they get into a recital room like Wigmore Hall and they overpower it or it just somehow doesn't work for them so well. And there are others for whom the intimacy of the recital room really hits perfectly, but they somehow are a bit drowned out in the opera house. You seem to fit in both. And I'm curious about what you see the relationship between the two as being. Uh. I mean, quite simply, I, I just try and sing, you, you know, how how I'm moved to to sing the music that is suitable both for uh, for for the concert hall uh, and the intimacy of a concert hall, and then sort of the big broad stroke of the uh, of the opera house. And, but the sort of the mindset for either of those is basically um, in the song situation. I'm director stage manager and you know performer and conductor and all the sort of uh work going into it um is uh, through the collaboration of course with the uh with the with the pianist is is all about my specific reaction to the music and and really you know the opera stage is where yeah you're told yeah, I mean, you're, one's much part of a of a bigger operation, and one's role, literally, you're playing a role within a huge sort of environment. And I think as long as one understands that that's, you know, the trade-off in some ways. Um, I mean, opera work is, you know, you have to rehearsals are long and and demanding, and you're singing over an orchestra, which is physically demanding. Um, as I said, the broad strokes of a of an opera role are. It is all-encompassing in a in a way where your relationship to the entire production you have to give way a little bit. You have to know your place um, in a song recital. You're that's you are everything. So although the the intimacy may be there, actually the the entire involvement in the in the musical event uh, is kind of the same. 
in the opera house, the opera house, the opera house. We're waiting for the curtain to arise with wonders for our eyes. We're feeling pretty gay and well made. Oh, Julius, look, I say the band is tuning up and soon we'll start to play. We whistle and we hum, be time with the drum. We whistle and we hum, be time with the drum. We're sitting in the opera house, the opera house, the opera house. We're waiting for the curtain to arise with wonders for our eyes. A feeling of expectancy, a certain kind of ecstasy. Expectancy, an ecstasy, expectancy, an ecstasy! So how is it for you then putting together a recital programme? What's the, what's the process like? Where do you begin? Mm. I mean, you have one coming up at Wigmore on the 15th of June with your great collaborator, Julius Drake, and mm. you're doing a, a programme of Schubert songs in the first half and then Rachmaninoff, Britain, and Mark Anthony Turnage songs as well yes. in the second half. So where did you begin with that and, and what goes into putting that experience together? Sure. I, well, it, it's really to try and, uh, on the one hand, make an event... Um, make sure that it's not just a, you know, a, a catalogue of, um, of one's favourite songs necessarily. Although I probably do know enough songs and how I could put together <laughs> entire songs of my favourites. Um, and so a programme like the 15th of June, for instance, is taking our recent experience of putting together. Well, Schubert has become a more a companion with, of mine in the last, I'd say, 10 years, um, a recording of Winterreise, um, looking at the, all the Goethe songs for, for low voice, um, and, and exploring really the element of the low voice in his music. And so that's in, in some ways what's been the basis of this first half coming up. Um, and I, I mean, I came to Schubert relatively late. I was a bit scared of him in the first part of my career, so I've got a lot of catching up to do. Um, I've just, if I can say that I've just recorded um, Schwanengesang, and that hopefully will be out later this year, and that was also a, a piece that I learned very young, and my goodness, after the decades, if you like, of doing a lot of other music and coming back to his Schubert's last songs mm. um, has given me a whole new perspective, really, on what what Schubert is offering within his early songs, and 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 that. So, in many ways, uh, programming Schubert now is a great. It's like a you know choosing what to serve at the best feast possible, and um, I'm I'm relaxing with him a lot more. I used to find Schubert really um, monumental. And Fischer Dieskau was always my great idol, and I heard him sing the, the greatest Schubert concerts I ever have ever heard. And you heard Fischer Dieskau in concert in concert oh. here at the Wigmore, mm. and at the Festival Hall, and at the Queen Elizabeth Hall when what, I was a student. What was it about him as a performer, particularly of of Schubert, that that you admired? Well, he was my first disc, uh, and so I first got to know. Him his voice in the in my own private song listening time when I was a teenager. It was the first disc I was given. The recordings with Gerald Moore? With Gerald Moore. And, Mine uh, too. Yeah. I had a box set of yes. the complete yes, Fischer yes. Disco, this kind of blue box set. Yeah. Complete Schubert. Yeah. I was on, I was in LPs um, <laughs> in those days. But, uh, but in any case, he, he was just that artist who seemed to sing this perfect balance between 
the intent of the poem, the musical line that Schubert gave, and and sort of he he would float literally on this sort of sound that Gerald Moore created, and it was nothing about it was nothing about the voice or it was nothing about Dietrich Fischer Dieskau. It was about this amazing experience musically, and I think that infused me greatly to well emulate him initially, which was kind of a vocally um, ridiculous thing to do because my voice was always going to be lower and a little bit different than his. But finally, in these last years, I've begun to have courage to be my own artist. And that was really that, the thing, to, to reveal the, the, the music. And, and I was never... And the intimacy which he created, that, that really one-to-one -one with the listener, um, the fragility that he would get in his voice, and, and then the earnestness, and then the power, and then the commitment, and then this delicate feather-like thing that he could do, which, you know, critically sometimes people felt that was contrived, but I always felt he was a genuine artist, so that really inspired me. And how is Schubert to sing? Hard. In what way? Well, I think it's like Mozart, you know, young singers are given Mozart because it's tuneful. But part of the real challenge about singing songs which are tuneful is that we don't care about them, or I, I think there's a danger that you just assume that the melody is there and somehow you just have to deliver it. And I have discussions with colleagues about this a bit. Some people feel that Schubert is sort of too enshrined in some ways as, you know, this, or that the leader evening is, you know, this sanctified thing going on. And I think there's a, you know, I, I'm quite happy to respect him because I think as a composer he's he's amazing. Um, but I think we have to respect him in a way as singers that we have to bring our greatest art and our greatest technical abilities to to understand the subtleties of his writing. Because the music, I was just saying to Julius yesterday, that, that we find when Schubert is at his most passionate, he's actually at his most simple. And when he wants a painful effect, he's often in the major key. And, and you know, to allow that to blossom within a performance of a song, and just to acknowledge it, just give it space, give it room. It's not just singing through it and hearing, you know, or slowing up really a lot, say, here's the major key. It's like you just allow it to happen. And that, I think that takes a lot of discipline and awareness that the music is doing it rather than the singer and the pianist do it. And there's so often in, in a lot of those songs, I mean, you mentioned Schwan and Gesang, the last songs, n n maybe not technically a cycle in the same way that Winterreiser or Schoenbrüller mm. are, but, mm. Mm. but a collection that, that speak to something in particular in a way. But there's, there's almost a sense with Schubert that the simplicity comes out of a, a process, that there has been an experience, there has been something deep and painful, and it's like the clouds just part a little bit and... And there we are with simplicity. And in a sense, as a singer, you have to be able to tell all of that in not very little at all. It's one of the great um, things that I try and tell when I'm encountering the young singers of today is like, you know, first of all, people have given up a, up a modicum of their personal time to be with you as you deliver this this song. and. You have to have a reason for doing the song. You have to 
as you say, it's the moment that Schubert has decided that it's this poem should be revealed in this way, and these are his reactions to it, and this is how he feels this particular reflection of um, the babbling brook, or the or the golden sun, or the or the winter, the winter snow, silencing the rattling of the carts going along the great, which is a, a quote from Leitner's um, Der Winterabend, and you hear all that in the songs and. The description is just enough to give you the impression of that's happening, but what you're really interested in is that the poet is sharing his contentment with being inside, snug by a fire, with the moon shining through the window, and all these natural elements, and, but the contentment of the poet, and Schubert reveals that. And it's complex, yes, we need to get the diction right, and you know the tempo right, and the key right, and all that, but it's actually really just a sharing of a moment with someone who's content. And that begs a question when you're when you're looking at a, a first half of a concert like the one you'll be doing with Julius of, of a collection of different individual Schubert songs. Hmm. It's one thing when you are either a character in an opera or a protagonist in a cycle like mm. Winterizer, mm. and you can go on a journey in a sense from from one point of view, although you're looking mm. at something from lots of different angles, mm -hmm. you're still the same protagonist in either of those big cycles. Yes. When it comes to to creating that moment in an individual song, mm -hmm. what what's happening for you in the moment when you're there on stage and you begin a new song afresh and you have to sort of drop into that entire world and context in mm. a split second. Yeah, um, I suppose it's a bit like, hmm, I would say it's a bit like, say, looking at David Hockney, looking at the trees in Yorkshire. You know, he's got various perspectives on what those trees should look like at a particular moment in the, in the season. And then he has a new perspective, perhaps, that example is a bit rigid because he's looking at the same trees throughout the seasons. But for Schubert, looking at the way his emotions are, um, you know, inspired, shall we say, by the idea of the moon being a companion, the uh, idea of, of a rushing brook taking, taking a message uh, to, to the loved one. Um, but the, the moon, I have to say, as it happens, it seems to feature rather predominantly in the programming that we're doing for this particular <laughs> recital. It's kind of by accident, um, but the moon is mentioned a lot in um, uh, in the songs we chose. There's five Schubert, three Leitner, and then three um, uh, three poems by Seidel, Schiller, and and finishing with Goethe, of course, with the famous Earl King, and I. Yeah, I just never know when I'm going to sing Earl King again, so he, he has to, that has to be the end of the first half. Um, uh, and Julius always likes it at the end of the, the, the half because it's a killer for the piano. But so if we know that we've got a kind of a, a bookend like that, how do we get into it? So we thought, well, why don't we start with something completely different and have Meeresstille, which is completely quiet, and I hope that people will quickly shift off their you know, their urban life and come right into this amazing calmness from the very beginning. And then we get rolling with, with sort of more active Schubert songs and things like that. But there's a lot of play, you know, 
choosing five Goethe, well indeed six, um, but the first group is five of them. And, um, and then the Leitner, I wanted to have, definitely wanted to have Der Winterabend because I hadn't sung it and I haven't wanted to. And um, two others seemed to be, fit perfectly with that, which was Die Sterne and um, Der Kreuzzug. So there we are. That's how a program evolves. So you're in a sense in, in a program like that where you have one composer and a half of the program, you're, you're creating your own sort of mini song cycle and your, your own journey Ye for the listener. Yeah, and sort of offering them the chance to sort of see, oh, there's a relationship there or, oh, this is how Leitner might have inspired Schubert or isn't it funny how he says these things again um, and yeah it's it's I feel like a bit like a um, uh, you know someone who uh, is setting up an art exhibition in some ways I mean it's really pictures of an exhibition you know um, I think that's really the uh, my my great love and and the, the way to program something which is going to make an event of not only in each individual song but them collectively and then as a half and then then as a whole program. I'm interested in in the balance that we were talking about at the very beginning about the the opera the kind of whole big evening the work and then the intimacy and I suppose scale of song. Mm. Of course the other thing that that we have there is that is the durational aspect that yeah. an opera is a long experience yes a song is often only about three minutes and of course mm. you know the one of the things that i think classical music has struggled with is this idea that our attention spans these days are not very long but with the lead mm. you don't need more of an attention span for a song than you have for a pop song do you feel that there as a result the lead has a particular place for us in our contemporary society? Well, it's a moment of meditation, of course. Uh, it, those songs, as other colleagues will, will argue, um, were really meant for just salon. We're just meant for sitting around a piano with friends and, and musing. Um, I mean, poetry reading isn't exactly a great uh, event to go to these days. But it was it was something that one did in one's family life in in those times and and in some ways yeah the the you know the separateness of how we re receive our music now is is usually provided to us by either us consciously switching on something or or having to buy a ticket and, and going to it it's not necessarily in our own environment unless we walk around with it of course uh, in our ears but. That's also a problem because people then expect concerts to be like in your ear. And so our, um, our live performances, which I think is about this amazing interaction between uh, two artists, in a lead recital anyway, creating an atmosphere and trying to make music which is dramatic, beautiful, moving, meditational, that sort of thing, is, is a really extraordinary uh, experience and I think in some ways yeah I think young people uh, might get that in 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 contemporary pop music or or in their in their experience with uh, with mu music that they listen to you know which they can choose to to be involved with but yeah leader in today's life you know great opera is great opera the themes are are grand uh, good leader is 
you know, punchy. It tells something in a very short time, um, usually with great depth of meaning. And I think in that way, yeah, you have to be a special listener to absorb these great kind of profound bits of poetry offered by the greatest song composer ever and and still walk out feeling normal <laughs> but it's hard it's, it takes a lot of an audience and so I'm always astounded at how many people show up um, and even more grateful that they stay what would you like them to have experienced by the end I mean obviously every recital program is different yeah. but but what is your what is your hope for people leaving the hall at the end oh that they've had some sort of emotional connection with the music that absolutely they've gone I didn't know that hearing music about the sunset could be so beautiful or so meaningful to me I remember when and then hopefully that inner dialogue starts um, yeah that there's that there's somehow a shared appreciation is not really the word it's it's more shared um, understanding that these moments are good for the human soul, that somehow our refreshment, our ability to share deep, sometimes tragic emotion is actually healthy for us um, because we don't often get a chance to do it in our crazy busy lives. And what about the alchemy of that relationship between the singer and pianist? The dreaded word accompanist, which of course is such a <laughs> red herring because it is, in a sense, a duet partnership. Absolutely. I think, I mean, uh, there's a special way, I think, and obviously in Schubert's music, and then, then it became Schumann and Brahms and, and Wolf, really. I think Wolf, maybe Liszt too, Wolf really demanded a lot of his pianists because it, they were mini orchestra. It was really... He really wanted an orchestra sound out of those. And uh, I often think that the singer and the pianist get more out of Wolf than the audience does because <laughs> he, he's, really, he's really dense um, for, for, as for musicians and as well as audiences. Schubert, on the other hand, um, offers the pianist, again, this, well, I don't play the piano to any level at all, but when I see that I can, you know, nearly accompany myself, in some of these songs, but not to the degree of pianistic ability that is really needed to understand what the depth of each note playing is, that legato and and resonance and pedaling and everything that comes from that amazing instrument needs to be in the hands of a master to really get the full effect of what Schubert wants. Um, so I respect that very deeply from, from my pianists. Um, and also their view of his piano music as well, um, where he is offering technical and challenging things. Um, but Schubert was also, you know, writing music for people to play in their salons. <laughs> so there we are again. We're back at the idea of the pianist thinking, oh, well, is this really very easy to play? But in fact, it can be very challenging to get to the real subtleties that Schubert probably unconsciously provided. And... Uh, I'm always looking for, A, a response from the pianist to either the poetry that we're doing, obviously, but also from the whole musical picture of, of you know, this begins in a certain key, it modulates. Here we have a fast-moving section, but actually the whole line needs to be very calm, overarched, because that's the, that's the theme of the song. 
And sometimes it's very useful to have a pianist go, you know, I'm not convinced by what you're doing there. So that's a great help collaborating. If I can't convince my own pianist <laughs> of my artistic intent, then I'm not going to, I'm not getting anywhere near sharing it with the audience. In order to have those sorts of quite challenging discussions, hmm. I'm not convinced. That sort of thing, you need to have a real relationship of trust with that pianist. Absolutely. I mean, my relationship with Julius Drake is, yeah, uh, decades old now. And the, the privilege that I've had to be a part of his musical uh, life is, and, and, you know, I certainly benefit from the fact that he has amazing relationships with with other wonderful, wonderful singers. And so he's had a lot of experience in a broad range of repertoire. And, and, and from that point of view, it means that I'm gaining, you know, immensely from his experience so that when we get together finally, after having been apart, we have, haven't performed now since last October. So that's, you know, a good seven months nearly before, seven or eight months. But we have, you know, five rehearsal sessions and we put it together and somehow it well we we put a framework around it normally our performances are really these spontaneous things that neither of us can kind of comprehend so it's a really special musical event when it happens so do you leave some sort of degree of unknown in it is that what you're saying that you oh. i mean i'm not talking about under rehearsing but there is the, the space for something really spontaneous to happen well what, what always is great is when you when there is a mood created in the in the hall and you hear a silence and you hear or an attentiveness is perhaps better and then it's like i don't know throwing a a perfect i'm going to use a cricket term here for no reason at all but you you, you throw a perfect uh pitch and and the batter just knocks it sweetly. So I'm being thrown a wonderful pitch by Julius either in an introduction to the next phrase and I understand that he's wanting to kind of leap into the next phrase and no it's it's kind of like riding horses together and switching mounts at the same time. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. What about the hall itself? You know it very well. <laughs> yeah, I mean it doesn't lie whatever condition your voice is in is is what goes over um, it is it's a really happy hall uh, it's got a lovely essence of I mean from from the vocal point of view it it allows a spaciousness for the bigger sounds but it also has this miracle of um, being able to sustain this ability for a singer to sing quietly at the very edge of what I would call their breath which becomes a really, it's almost like being whispered to. And that's, in fact, oh, when I heard Herman Pry sing actually one of the songs I'm going to sing on, uh, uh, on the 50th of June is uh, Undine Mund. He sang it as a, uh, it was D259, just because there's another one. Um, he sang it as an encore and sang it as if he was singing it to himself. And yet it was so full in the hall, one felt like one was being enwrapped almost hugged by his, his, you know, by this intimacy. It was just one of those miracles of, of, um, of acoustics, really, where you heard every, almost every little, it's a bit like Karen Carpenter. I don't know if you know any of her recordings where you can hear, hear her salivating at each little sort of thing. And that was the, that's what the hall does. It's like this glorious, 
piece of mechanical machinery which allows you to be as intimate as you want um, and as powerful as you want. It's a miracle. Do you remember the first time you sang in that? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Oh, my goodness. I had, did a recital with my, uh, with my cousin. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit myself on that because I think the first time I actually sang was during the... I'm going to forget the name of the competition now. It's the most famous song competition. Farrier. The Farrier. And I got to the uh, semifinals and I decided to withdraw because I knew I wasn't going to win and I just felt it really and that was 1985 because that was the age limit so yeah and and I was sort of overwhelmed by the experience of singing in it and uh, that's that was the first time I sang here Wow. Uh, but I knew then that I had a lot of work to do as a singer and Janet Baker and Benjamin Luxon um, in, in other competitions that I had gone had said, look, we think you have a, a voice for song, but you also seem to have a voice for opera. Now, you've got to decide that there's only one voice that you're going to use. Um, let it be for both. And that was a one perfect advice because it then made me realize that I had to just learn how to be me and leave Mr. Leave Mr. Fischer Diska behind and leave Tom Krause behind and leave Samuel Ramey behind and just be me. And that was hard. That was hard, hard, hard. Conf confronting. We're getting there. I'm really interested in, given that it's such a, I suppose, an honest or revealing hall, why singers love it so much, because that could be construed as just really quite exposing. Well, I think probably most singers want to sing their best. And if something, you know, it puts you in a situation where you know you can sing better or you understand that, okay, that probably isn't my best, but it inspires me to, to go away and work harder, that's probably what the week more does. Because you understand that great people have performed here in all disciplines. And, yeah, it's a hallowed hall for, for all the right reasons, magical musical moments have happened here and wow to be part of it you know starts out as a dream and little by little you gain the confidence of those who are um, willing to give you a go and 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 by doing it we get better and so I think from that point of view yeah if, if you feel that each time you come back to the Wigmore it's a more enriching experience from your own personal performing point of view, then, yeah, I think that's why it becomes an essential part, certainly of, of song singing uh, throughout the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's the number one spot. In a recent Wigmore Hall podcast, Dame Emma Kirkby talked about the sweet spot on stage. <laughs> and this was sort of news to me. I mean, I knew that it was an extraordinary acoustic mm. to sing in. And of course, when you have a curved wall, mm. the chances are there's a point mm. where something happens. But you know what she's talking Absolutely. about? Where it's, is it? Oh, uh, there's, a, there's a little flap where the, uh, where the microphone um, uh, port is on the stage, flat on the ground. And it's about it's about six or eight inches behind that, or, or upstage of that, shall we say, towards the middle of the piano. And, uh, and right then, you can make a sound, and you hear yourself from, from 
all around. I mean, your, your own sound is sort of literally reconverged on yourself. And that's quite uncomfortable in some ways. And so if you just step a little ahead of that, you then angle yourself so that all the sound is going out. So you know if you're, you're in that sort of sphere of your own sound that you're too far back. So you just move a little forward and you know, your, then your angles sort themselves out, all does, your wave does, patterns. From, from does anybody tell you that when you first nine. arrive, or does every singer figure that out for themselves? Or it's, is there a kind of code about it? Everyone knows, do they? No, I, well, I mean, I discovered it simply by, by accident, and it was a terrifying experience. I said, where, where are all the speakers? Suddenly I was looking around, and, uh, and, and then, you know, I was, stood in the same place and had that effect and thought, oh, okay, well, that can't happen, so... One, one just adjusts as a result. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a. I mean, you get to know what you sound like if you if you stand <laughs> in the wrong spot. But no, there's, as you say, the acoustic shell is a really wonderful, uh, sensible architectural uh, feature of the whole. <laughs> And is there something about the fact that you know that everyone in the hall can hear you and about the, the kind of quality and presence of that acoustic that, that can sort of relax something in you as a singer because you know that you don't have to go out to meet people. I you can draw them oh, in. That's such a, I mean, I hope now that every, every young student of singing will listen to this podcast and hear that comment or hear that perspective because that's exactly what it is. I mean, song singing is about sharing. It's not about presenting necessarily. I mean, I, that is one of the major differences between singing uh, opera and singing song. Opera is about projection. Singing is about sharing and creating intimacy that people lean forward to listen to, or you know, receive it in a way where they're 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 drawn into the to the if you like the the musical moment that's ha happening, you know, no more than fifty feet away from them, and uh, and I think that creates uh, a communal atmosphere in an audience which is uh, unlike any anything else. I mean, yes, okay, chamber music that's. That's something, but I think when you're listening to a singer singing with their most beautiful voice, with their most honest, I mean, it's revealing of not only the mu music of the composer, but also of the singer's soul. And that's a very fragile and vulnerable thing. So being up on stage, knowing that, as you say, everybody can listen to your inmost thoughts, actually, you don't have to work too hard. And therefore, yeah, it can be a hugely it's a very powerful personal moment if one is feeling relaxed about you know how, how one's singing at that particular moment. What do you do after a Wigmore Hall recital? I've always been amazed that the green room is right there and, and the audience come back and congratulate you and say hello yeah. so that you yeah. can't maintain the artifice of of the Opera House for example you know the... No no keep them away keep them away <laughs> no this is my space my... well no I think that's the other thing is 
in true Schubertian fashion. It's, you know, sharing an evening with friends. And the friends come back and, and say, where should we go for dinner? Or, you know, lovely to see you, hope to see you, you know, down the way. Or, you know, we've been listening to, you know, some of your colleagues doing this and we came to Wigmore Hall three months ago and heard that song and, um, you know, love the way you do it, but, you know, have you heard so-and-so do it? And so there's lots of, yeah, it's a conviviality um, of, yeah, wonderfully like-minded people who have, again, <laughs> given up their, their time to be with you for that, for that recital. And do you tend to feel sociable after performance or do you have a sort of longing to, to retreat? It depends. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't lie if I said that that Vinterizer, particularly, say Schubert's Vinterizer, or any of the darker material that I've sung, say Mussorgsky, Songs and Dances of Death, or Ned Roram's War Scenes, or yeah, or any of that kind of yeah, sharing personal and deep and sometimes dark aspects of the human condition. Uh, means that one isn't exactly um, raring to sort of go and have a, have a slap-up meal afterwards. But I think the atmosphere created is, is a big testament to, to what can happen in the hall. And a bit like opera, once you're off stage, then, yeah, there's always a recovery. There's no doubt, you know, personally and, and psych psychologically. But hopefully it's gone as well as you can hope. and. And that is always a, a great pleasure with certainly with a pianist like Julius, where we feel if something's gone well, it's it's a, a great brotherhood. Anyone listening to this ahead of the fifteenth of June is going to be scrambling to try and get tickets. If, if someone's listening after it, um, when is the next moment that we can catch you at Wigmore Hall? Well, that's going to be the seventh of April, two thousand and twenty. Do you yet know what you're doing then? Ah, I have a pretty good thought. I think there's going to be some Schumann and I think there's going to be some Foray in in that program. Um, specifics will be forthcoming but... Um, You're in the process of working it out as director, dramaturg... All of that, yes. Scenery, props, <laughs> uh, lighting. Um, the man in charge. <laughs> yes, with my co-producer Julius, yes. No, it's... it's uh, my hope is that... Um, it will offer something, you know, which reflects the journey that I've been on since, well, this one. Thank you so much, Gerald. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, me too. Thanks.